I want to begin with a question for you. Where do you lack confidence in your life? Where do you lack confidence? I was reading a, an article this week that shared a large percentage of kids and youth lack confidence in how they look. A large percentage of kids and youth are so uncomfortable, they lack so much confidence in how they look, they tend to stand behind in pictures. They try to avoid group gatherings. They like to stay in the background of life because their assumption is they won't fit in. Another area that kids and youth lack confidence is in their intelligence. This article said a large percentage of kids worry that they lack the gifting or intelligence to be successful in life. Two areas of kids where they lack confidence, how they look, how they think. It's not just kids and youth that lack confidence. How about us as adults? We lack confidence too. We lack confidence in our ability to live up to expectations at work. We lack confidence in our ability to restore a healthy marriage. We lack confidence in the ability to raise healthy children. I was reading another article this week, and many people lack confidence in our own state. Over the last two years, 20% of Californians have left. 20% over the last two years have left our state because of a lack of confidence and where we're going. So let me ask you, where do you lack confidence? In particular, where do you lack confidence in your Christian faith? There are so many areas we lack confidence. How about in our walk with Christ? How about in our confidence in Him? There's a number of people who lack confidence in God's ability and desire to forgive them. When we look at the darkness of our own heart and life, we lack confidence that God could love us. Or that confidence that God can love someone else. We lack confidence in God's plan and his power to complete it. We look at broken marriages and are ready to give up. We look at broken people and we're ready to give up. We look at a broken culture and we're ready to give up. Let me ask you a question. Where do you lack confidence in your life? And not just your life, where do you lack confidence in your Christian life? See, I believe that's another benefit of the Holy Spirit. One of the effects of power that came into our lives through salvation with the Holy Spirit is confidence. Confidence in God's plan and his power to complete it, not just in our broken culture, but through your lives. I believe that because it's evident in the believers of the early church in Acts chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you join me in the book of Acts, chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me recap again so far what's happened in the book of Acts. Before Jesus ascended, he gave a promise of power. He said the Holy Spirit would come upon you. And, and as a result, you're to be his witnesses. Like the Holy Spirit came with a purpose to empower his followers, his people, to be witnesses. 
A number of days later, that promise of power came true when the Holy Spirit descended on their lives. The presence of God appeared like a pillar of fire and it instantly exploded into 120 equal pieces, landing on each believer to make sure that they all understood that they were all equally empowered to be witnesses of Christ. There's no superstars. There's no specially gifted. Everyone's empowered. After that, the Apostle Peter gave a powerful sermon that the Holy Spirit used to convince hearts. And 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus. Just that day. Around that same time, Peter and John were just walking through life, going to prayer with everyone else in the temple. They came along a, a crippled man who had been crippled from birth. That man had given up hope for restoration of his life. He was just hoping for something for that day. That's when Peter said, silver and gold I don't have for you. But what I do have, the power of God at work in my life. What I do have, I give to you. Get up and walk. That was last week's passage where that man leapt and walked into the temple, leaping and praising God. And that created a stir amongst the whole temple. Everyone started to gather. And once again, Peter used that time to give a sermon about who Jesus was. And that's where we pick up our story. Acts Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Here's what we read. This is right there. Everyone's gathering around. There's this huge commotion in the temple. Chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, as Peter and John were talking about Jesus, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees came up to them. You got a picture. And make sure we all understand kind of who the priests are. But the captain of the temple guard was the second highest ranked person in all of the temple, second only to the high priest. And it's a big deal. There's Peter and John. They just restored a man. There's this huge crowd. They're preaching Jesus. And all of a sudden, the priests show up to the crowd, the captain of the temple guard. The number two man in the entire temple, he would oversee the Levites, he would oversee the gatekeepers, he would probably also oversee some lower-ranking priests. This was a top-tier leader. Not only that, the priest came, the captain of the temple guard came, and the Sadducees came as well. The Sadducees were a variety of Judaism that existed during this time period. Although there's very uh, small number of, of Sadducees in comparison to the Pharisees, they are believed to control the most, power, the most of the powerful political and religious positions of their day. There's not a lot known about them. But thanks to Josephus, a historian of that time, he gives us some information about them. The Sadducees did not believe in an eternal soul. Thereby, they did not believe in any reward or punishment after death. And perhaps their most notable passionate belief was their rejection of any type of resurrection. So picture this. This is the whole temple is surrounding Peter and John. 
and they're preaching. The priests, the number two ranking guy, and then the Sadducees who control majority of the political power, majority of the religious direction and leadership. I mean, all of a sudden, the power players of what's going on of their day, they come up to them, verse two, and look how they came up. Greatly disturbed. Greatly disturbed. That means that phrase means they were more than just bothered. They were visibly upset, shaking in anger. They were so worked up, they just could not control themselves. I mean, they were coming unglued. They were going bananas. Peter and John are there preaching the gospel. And these high-ranking religious leaders show up, and they're hacked. Why? And look, the text is very clear. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They weren't just saying Jesus rose from the dead. They're saying you can rise from the dead too. They were proclaiming that you have new life in Jesus Christ. They were preaching the gospel. And the leaders of that day didn't like it. Look at verse 3. Look what they did. And they laid hands on them. That's, a, that's Bible talk for they are very authoritative. They exercised their authority and put them in jail until the next day for it's already evening. And if you're just reading this, you're thinking, oh, well, that's the end of that new movement. I mean, how can a little movement thrive against the political powers of their day? How could a religious movement thrive when majority of religious leaders didn't even agree? I mean, they're done, right? Right there in the temple. The authority put them in jail. The paparazzi are there taking pictures of Peter and John in handcuffs. I mean, everyone's putting it on social media. It would have been a nightmare. There's no way this movement moves on. That's what you're reading. That's what you're thinking if you're reading this for the first time. We know that because look at the first word of verse 4. It's a big biblical but right there. See, just when you think, just when you think that this movement's over, but... Despite all of that drama, many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. First lesson of confidence, confidence in the work of God. Confidence in the work of God. Right here, the first four verses, we think there's no way they can move on. Political powers are against them. Other religious leaders are against them. This is a small movement. They're through, they're finished. But somehow, Luke wants us to understand that God is still at work in the midst of it. And we shouldn't be surprised by that truth. And they shouldn't be surprised by that truth. Listen, Jesus warned his disciples about something like this. Look what he said in John 15. He said this, if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember, 
Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Jesus promised a number of things, one of which there will be persecution. There will be struggle for people who follow Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised by that. The Apostle Paul wrote this to his young protege, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3 said this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Indeed, all, everyone, if you desire to be godly, if you live with confidence in God's plan and his power to complete it in you, you will experience some type of persecution. But God isn't finished. See, even when you endure hardship and persecution, that doesn't mean that God isn't working. Oftentimes it means he is working even more. Even in the midst of hardship and persecution, in the midst of hard times, it doesn't mean God's left. Oftentimes in the midst of persecution, that means God shows up even more. Look what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. It says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. And these whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Listen, God is at work. The gospel is at work, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of struggle, even in the midst of loss, even in the midst of fear, even in the midst of worry, even in the midst of political corruption, God is at work. Look at what the brother of Jesus wrote, James chapter 1. He said, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In the midst of hardship, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of loss, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial, in the midst of hardship because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you can have confidence. Confidence in God's work not just in that situation, but in your life. I wonder, where do you need to have confidence in the work of God in your life this week? What's an area of hopelessness in your Christian life? Maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your children, maybe it's your culture, maybe it's your church, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's someone that you're working with. Maybe it's confidence in your own life, in your own heart, and God's love and ability and desire to forgive you, transform you, and use you for his glory. Where do you need confidence? The work of God in your life. Don't get distracted by the trouble. Instead, be, it, be on the lookout for the work of God in the midst of your hardship. 
First area, I'm convinced Christians today, Christians back then, Christians can have confidence. It's in the work of God. Let's keep going. Verse 5, Peter and John, they're in jail overnight. You think maybe their reputation, their ministry is over. There's no way you can come back from something like that when the religious leaders, the elite leaders of culture are against you. Look what happens, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, but what power, by what power and what name have you done this? I want to hit pause for a minute because what Luke is describing is the Sanhedrin. If you haven't heard about the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin is the supreme Jewish religious, political, and legal council in Jerusalem at that time. This council would contain the current high priest and likely those who were previously high priests before that, other high-ranking priestly officials as well. Of course, the captain of the temple guard was probably there. This group was understood to be the ultimate political and religious authority of the Jewish people. Sanhedrin. They're the ultimate authority. So look at their question. Their question, they say, by what power or in what name have you done this? Look, we know we're in charge. We know we're the authority. And we didn't say you can do that. So who said you can do that? Whose authority is over us? We're the Sanhedrin. We're the high priest. We're past high priests. We're the temple guard. We're the smartest, most religious people here. We're the ultimate authority. We know best. Who said you could do that? Look at Peter's response, verse 8. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Man, I love that right there. It wasn't... Peter filled with indignation. That's not what it says. Peter offended, greatly offended that they would ask him such a question. That's not what it says. Peter armed with lawyers and a ton of followers. That's not what it says. Peter armed with one thing. Holy Spirit. Peter armed with one thing. He didn't have counsel. He had the Spirit. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, who you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone by which has been rejected by you, the builders by which became the chief cornerstone. And there is, no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So the Sanhedrin, the ultimate authority of the day, says, who gave you the authority to say that, to do what you're doing? Question, who has authority over us? We're the authority over people. 
Peter's simple response, Jesus. Second lesson, we can have confidence in the authority of Jesus. And I love how Peter does this. He's like, you want to know whose authority? I'll tell you, Jesus. And look what he says, who you crucified. I'm here under the authority of Jesus, who, by the way, you killed. Make no mistake, the Sanhedrin and those men who were in this room were complicit and very involved in the false trial, mockery, abuse, and crucifixion of Jesus. Let me, let's do a little history. Put your thumb in Acts. Let's pop over to the Gospel of Matthew, first book in the New Testament. Let me just remind you of some stuff that happened. Matthew chapter 26. Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. I mean, Peter is bold. He's looking against the authority of his day. He says, listen, I answer to a higher authority than you. I answer to Jesus. Yeah, you know him. That's right. You killed him. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished All these words he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Verse three, then the chief priests, part of the Sanhedrin, the elders of the people, part of the Sanhedrin, were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, same guy that Peter's talking to now, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. The Sanhedrin gathered together to plot and plan against Jesus by stealth, behind the scenes, corrupt for the goal of killing him, verse 5. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Flip over to the end of chapter 26, verse 57. Same guys. Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, same guy that Peter's talking to, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together, same place, the Sanhedrin. But Peter was following him in a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest entered in, sat down with officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death. Man, you see the corruption that's going on? Let's flip over to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Flip from the first book to the fourth book. Gospel of John, chapter 11. John, chapter 11. in the Bible for all to see about this Sanhedrin, this high priest, chief priest, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. John chapter 11, verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. We're saying, what are we doing? This man is performing signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. 
They're not interested in truth right now. They're interested in control. Hey, we don't care about the truth. We just want to have control. Verse 49, but one of them, there's that name again, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, that the whole nation not perish. Caiaphas' solution. Hey, we don't want drama. We don't want Rome to come in and take away our freedoms. Let that one man die so that all of us can live in peace. So when the Sanhedrin comes up, they start coming up to Peter with their high and mighty piety, their religious authority, their political power. They say, hey, who said you can do that? Peter shared a name that every man in that room was familiar. I am here in the authority of Jesus, whom you killed. Jesus Christ in Nazarene, whom you crucified. But that's not the end of the story. You don't have power. God has a final power. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. And by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Jesus is not only our authority, but he has the power to work through us. And because of that, this man not only stands in good health, but is saved. A term good health at the end of verse 10 means to be whole, completely healthy, fully restored. Look, Jesus not only gave us the authority to preach it, Jesus restored this man's life. And not only that, look at verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is over you, Caiaphas, high priest. Jesus is higher than you, temple guard. Pharisees, Sadducees, you can believe what you want. God's at work. Isn't that the idea of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2? After he talked about Jesus leaving heaven to die, to pay for sins. Look at what it says. For this reason also, God then highly exalted him, meaning Jesus, and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, listen, there's something that we need to come to grips with in our life. When the Holy Spirit came, one of the effects of that is confidence, not just confidence in the work of God, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of kooky California, I promise you God is at work. And we can have confidence in the authority of Jesus Christ. There is no higher power. Not the U.S. Supreme Court, NORAD, 
Red Cross. There is no higher authority than Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who said, you will be my witnesses. I empowered you. I saved you and I empowered you to go to the ends of the globe to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Effects of power, effects of the Holy Spirit, confidence, confidence in the work of God, confidence in the authority of Jesus. Lastly, confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit. I love this. Love how it ends. Verse 13. I mean, Peter just gave them the business. Look at what they said. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another saying, what shall we do? The fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place to them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. This Sanhedrin, this authority over the whole area, they're like, what do you do with this? Look how they described, look how they described. Number one, they observed the confidence of Peter and John. That term confidence is used to describe a boldness and courage in situations that would cause others to tremble and hold back. They say, oh, you can't believe this. Man, this confidence, this authority that Peter and John have in this situation that would cause mere men to tremble, not Peter and John. And it gets even worse. Look, they're uneducated. They didn't even go to seminary. They had no special rabbinical school. They didn't go to seminary, yet they spoke with authority and power regarding spiritual things. They weren't ordained by a church. They have a huge campus. They didn't have business cards. All they had was the Holy Spirit, the Sanhedrin, this authority is looking at them like, how do these guys have such confidence? They're uneducated. They have no training. Even yet, look, they're uneducated and untrained. That term untrained, I, I chuckled at this. In the Greek, the Greek word is idiotes. This is where we get our English word idiot. <laughs> That's the same here. They're like, where do these guys have this confidence? They didn't go to school. In that day, the most gifted kids kept going on to rabbinical school. Peter and John, not gate. <laughs> they're just normal people. And they're idiots. They're untrained. They have no education, no special skills. They're just normal people. Man, what enables normal people? to have this type of confidence and this type of power. Well, it says, they were amazed, they were shocked, they were stunned, we don't get it. And then they began to recognize, man, the only thing we can think of is Jesus was at work in them. And left the authority 
of that time to scratch your head saying, what do we do? We don't have confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit to use us. Ordinary people. Idiots, if you don't mind the term. Isn't that what Paul was talking about? See, it's not just for them. Christians lack confidence in God's ability to use us And I believe that's why Paul gave this passage. 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world. And the despised God has chosen the things that are not. So that he may nullify the things that are. Why does God choose idiots? Weaklings? Broken people? Small churches in the midst of, in the midst of kooky California? Why? So that no man may boast before God. So that everyone recognize, oh my gosh, there's only one answer. God's at work. I got to tell you, that verse years ago transformed my life. Remember, we did a series on this a while back. It's not just Peter and John. They weren't the first two idiots that God used. God's used idiots throughout Scripture. Untrained, uneducated, unskilled, normal, ordinary people. God chooses to use them. Church, I think every Christian needs to have more confidence in their Christian life. Confidence in the work of God, even in the midst of kooky culture. You need to have confidence in the authority of Jesus Christ. There is no name higher than the authority of Jesus Christ. In the end of Matthew, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. I'm the head honcho. I'm the one everybody answers to. And I'm telling you, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I commanded you. And I'm with you even to the end of the age. If anyone asks, who said you could do that? Jesus did. If they don't like it, they can answer to me. We need to have confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit, number one, to use us, to use you. And I know if you're like me, there's all sorts of reasons in your head and in your heart why God can't or won't. Maybe people have even told you falsely that God can't or won't. I've heard that. But it's important you understand when the Holy Spirit came, every Christian, every single one can have confidence, not just in the work of God in the midst of your messy life, not just in the authority of Jesus, but in the power of the Holy Spirit to use you. There's another thing, though, 
confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit to use us, and secondly, to compel us. So the Sanhedrin are wondering what to do. That's where we finish the story, verse 17. Look what they say. But so that it will not spread any further among the people. Look, we have to, we have to lessen the damage. Let us warn them not to speak any longer to any man in this name. When they'd summoned them, when the Sanhedrin brought Peter and John back, they commanded them. In the authority that we have, under the authority that you have, right? I mean, who cares what you're commanding me? I don't answer to you. That's what Peter and John should have said, but they're nicer than me. When they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's important. You can't speak at all. Not in the temple, out of the temple, not by the river, nowhere. Don't speak at all about Jesus. Verse 19, big biblical but right there. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. Look, we're not authority over you. You determine in your heart what you think God wants to do. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter says, look, you want to believe what you believe, knock yourself out. But as for us, we're compelled to tell people about the gospel of Christ. Verse 21, and threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them. On account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Look, you do what you think God wants you to do as leaders, Peter says. But as for us, we're compelled to tell people what God did in our lives. We're compelled to live differently because of what Jesus did in our lives. You know, this weekend, Monday's Memorial Day. So when I'm sitting in practice and swim meets and things, I was flipping through movies and flipped on Hacksaw Ridge. You guys see that movie? The movie about a, a man called De named Desmond Dawes. Desmond Dawes is a, a man of faith who sought to serve his country during World War II, but wanted to do it in a way that honored God as well. I want to serve my country and be faithful to God. See, Desmond was a pacifist. He didn't want to shoot a gun. And people mocked him. How can you serve your country and not shoot a gun? How can you minister in the midst of war and not shoot a gun? It cost him friendships, relationships. He was court-martialed. But then this one battle changed everything. In May 1945, as German troops were surrendering on the other side of the world, Japanese troops were fiercely defending to their last man. The only remaining barrier, Okinawa, and, and uh, 
the only remaining barrier to an allied invasion of their homeland, the men in Desmond's division were repeatedly trying to capture an imposing rock face the soldiers called Hacksaw Ridge. After the company had secured the top of the cliff, the Americans were stunned when suddenly enemy forces rushed them in a vicious counterattack. Officers ordered an immediate retreat. Soldiers rushed to climb back down the steep cliff. All the soldiers, except one. Less than one-third of the men made it back down. The rest lay wounded, scattered across enemy soil, abandoned and left for dead, if they weren't already. But one lone soldier disobeyed orders. Charged back into the firefight to rescue as many men as he could before either it collapsed or died. His iron determination and unfailing courage resulted in at least 75 lives saved that day. Later, when Desmond was asked why he lived his life that way, this was his response. He says, I don't know how I'd live with myself if I didn't stay true to what I believed. After that battle, people saw Desmond differently. People saw his conviction differently. People saw the power of God differently. I believe that's what God is not only calling us to do in our lives, but what God has empowered us to do in our lives, to have the same type of confidence and conviction to the gospel of Jesus Christ to do what we've been empowered to do, to be his witnesses to the ends of the globe. And with that determination, I don't know what I would do. I don't know how I'd live with myself if I didn't stay true to what I was empowered to do. The book of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 10, 23, encouragement to all Christians, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, without question, without worry. The plan of God is not dependent on the authority of man. The plan of God is solely dependent on his power. And his power is at work in each and every one of you. So I want to finish this Sunday with a question I started with. Where do you need confidence in your Christian life? Where do you need confidence like that? See, I don't think Jesus came to just have a bunch of people come into church an hour a week and look up to heaven and count down the prophecies until Jesus returns. He empowered us to be his witnesses, to be his emissaries, his ministers. And he's empowered us to have confidence confidence in the work of God maybe you're here you're like Brian I, I need to have confidence 
confidence that God's at work in my marriage with my children. I was talking to someone today. And we've been praying for her kids. She's beaming that God's been pursuing her kids and restoring them to himself. Where do you need confidence in the work of God? And perhaps you're looking at your life and you see nothing but darkness. God is at work. Look for him. Maybe you need confidence in the authority of Jesus. Maybe you're in this spot where you're trying to answer to everybody. You're worried about the corruption in government that has lasted throughout human existence. There's nothing new. Where do you need confidence in the authority of Jesus? He's the one who empowered you to be a witness. He is the one who has empowered you to be an emissary of the gospel. Maybe you need confidence the Holy Spirit at work in your life. You might be thinking, Brian, you don't know my heart. You don't know what I struggle with. You don't know where I've messed up. You don't know, you don't know my issues. You'd be surprised what I know through social media, first of all. But I don't always know your issues, but I know who does. It's God who said, if I'm for you, who can stand against you? Where do you need the power of God at work in your life? Confidence that he can use you and compel you to share what God has done. Let's pray together and ask for that confidence at work. God, we come before you because we confess that many times Christians lack confidence in your plan, at your work, God, in our culture, in our community, in our homes, in our marriages, with our children. God, sometimes it's so hard to see what you're doing. And God, we confess to you that there's times where we feel like you've abandoned us. So God, in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our struggle, God, give, us, give to us what you gave to David. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. We know you're with us. We know you're working. God, give us eyes to see what David saw. Give us eyes to see you at work in the midst of our culture, in the midst of our marriages, in the midst of our homes. God, give us confidence in your authority and courage. God, that we would be standing for you. We would learn how to walk that intersection between grace and truth. God, that we would proclaim your gospel but with the love and compassion, Jesus, that you showed when you walked with us. And God, finally give us confidence in the Holy Spirit. God, that he could use people like us. Transform us. Restore us. And use us for his glory. God, 
Help us to have confidence. Help us to see where you're calling us. God, compel us. Give us this need to reflect you to this world. God, we ask you to forgive us of our fear, of our timidness. And we ask, God, that you'd give us confidence today. We pray everything in Jesus' name.